Good morning. I'm off today, so uh, I told to myself yesterday, oh, today I'll have a grosse matinee. So I'll have a kind of a lazy morning and I'll sleep until 7.30. Oh la la. Because um, if I have morning shifts, so at 4.30 in the morning, I'm already on my feet. Uh, starting to pack up and make a coffee and stuff, stuff like that. Mm, but no, didn't happen. So... <laughs> I even didn't put an alarm. I said, I'll wake up when I'll wake up. So guys, uh, I woke up at 6.37. And I realized, so in uh, three, four days, you wake up very early in the morning. Then um, the next several days, even if you don't need to wake up so early, you're... Probably brain is set up to wake up you early enough anyway. So, uh, yeah, I'm awoken. <laughs> I already made a coffee uh, and I'm enjoying it. And had a Facebook cigarette, as people are uh, joking uh, lately. So, yeah. Uh, this uh, Facebook and social media um, dependence. Well, um, and ready to start a new podcast. Um, nothing uh, exceptional. I, I, I mean, every every reading is exceptional anyway, because that's the most this really amazing book. But I mean, I'm continuing. To, to I keep reading the most um, and probably from this evening or from tomorrow I'll have some readings from Liz Hay as well mm, yeah okay um, today um, the story is called Fog of Disbelief and the author is called Piliteri. So uh, we'll find out who is Carl Piliteri at the end of the story. I prefer to do it like this, like it is in the book. Okay. So let's, um, before I'll have a sip of uh, my delicious coffee. To um, make my voice be um, kind of um, doesn't come to my mind the word probably softer. Well, well, well. Uh, fog of disbelief. For many years, I walked along the northeast coast of Japan. And when assigned there, I would frequent this one particular restaurant five, six nights a week. Over the years, I came to grow a very fond of the older woman who owned and operated it. She didn't speak any English, and I didn't speak any Japanese, but we shared a friendship just the same. Upon arrival, 
I would always slide open her door and take a half step in and look at her as if to say, hey mom, I'm home. And she would greet me with this warm and welcoming smile and she was always happy to see me. She knew what I was there for, the same thing every time, her amazing pan-fried chicken dish. She was a motherly figure to me as well. She was always giving me extra things to eat. And I was just generally a very nice, and was just generally a very nice woman. I would stop there so often after work just to rest and relax. Yet I never knew her name or the name of her restaurant. We all refer to her fondly as the Chicken Lady. Her restaurant was located just south of the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear generating station where in 2011 I was working as a field engineer. When you walked through the gates of the Fukushima nuclear generating station, it resembled a botanical garden. Landscaping was immaculate. There were manicured lawns everywhere, and the three and the, and the trees were pruned to perfection to resemble this large bonsai. The reactor buildings themselves were painted sky blue with white clouds on them and it was always my favorite place to work. March 11, 2011. I was a beautiful was a beautiful sunny day there. My crew and I were working inside of the reactor one turbine one turbine building a huge rectangular shaped building similar in size to an international airport hangar. At 2.46 in the afternoon, I had a young man overhead in the crane as an operator. Ten of us, including myself, were in a very well-defined contaminated work zone, dressed from head to toe in our protective clothing, when suddenly it felt like someone took a very big hammer and hit the foundation of that very big building. I turned to my crew and I said, Earthquake! This powerful earthquake caused these massive upheavals of the earth and then these dropping sensations. It was taking the entire structure we were in with it. It was very violent and it was just starting. I was trying to navigate my way around my crew, the whole time keeping an eye on this young man in the overhead crane. He was taking the ride of his life as this crane hopped on its tracks and crept, and it was really difficult to watch. The concrete floor and walls around us began to crack, and sections of duct of duct work were coming down and the lights, the lights were dropping everywhere. The huge, vast space that we were in quickly filled with what I first thought was smoke, but was actually a thick 
cloud of dust that was being thrown airborne from this huge structure getting the living hell shook out of it. We were all right there on the borderline of panic and then the lights went out and we were in the pitch black. This uh, really scared the crap out of all of us. Two young Japanese boys came to me and grabbed a hold of me in the dark. I had this one tall kid on my left and he had his arm around my shoulder and I had my arm around his back. The other guy was on his knees and he had his arms around my waist and I had my hand on his shoulder. We were squeezing each other with every jolt that these things throwing at us and we were huddled up. Three grown men like three little boys and I began to pray earnestly aloud for all of us. It appeared that the Japanese boy on my left was praying in Japanese and we were standing just yards in front of this massive turbine and generator that was spinning at 1500 rpm being driven by the system coming right off the unit one reactor. It was a hundred percent power and the sounds that began to come out of this turbine caught my attention. I start to realize that it sounds like it wants to come apart and it's going to explode and pepper us against the walls. As if to confirm my fears, I hear my American co-worker from afar in complete darkness scream, It's gonna blow! It's gonna blow! And I recognize the terror in his voice. I stopped praying, and I went to this Psalm 23-4. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no Evil, but I couldn't get through it. I broke down in the middle somewhere, and I just surrendered. And I asked, "Just please make this quick." So we rode it out in the darkness. We were frozen there. We could feel it, and we, we could hear it, and we could smell it. We could even taste it. We just couldn't see it. About five minutes into that first quick, we caught a break and the light circuit came back on. There were only a handful of lights that had survived the quake, but it was enough light to see again. We were able to get the young man out of the crane and he was in rough shape, but we headed for the door. I made sure I was the last one out. Because this was my crew and I was responsible for them. I took one last look back at the millions of dollars worth of equipment and told him that I had cared for since 2008 and I just knew I wasn't going to see any of that again. <coughs> Pardon? I really need some coffee. That is too emotional. Oh my goodness, such a story.
<coughs> we finally get outside after many obstacles and we're jumping across cracks in the roadway. We get to a point where we have to split up. I have to head up this long stairway up the hillside to where my rental car is parked. When I get up there, I realize that the power of this quick has shifted all the parked cars and pinned mine in. I take a time out and I realize that my heart is beating out of my chest and I'm not breathing. And I start concentrating on getting my heart and lungs back in sync. I'm looking down the hillside and there's a freighter in the harbor in front of Fukushima. They are deck hands running around it and there is black smoke coming out of it. I remember thinking, well, this must be their procedure during an event of this magnitude. Then it struck me. Are they taking precautions against the possible tsunami? I watched them cast off and get out of the harbor and head out in the Pacific due east. I'm on top of this hillside now and I'm working on my breathing and surveying the damage around me which was staggering. These so-called aftershocks which are actually earthquakes and high on the magnitude scale were just ripping through and rattling my nerves. The earth around me was distorting like jello and I looked back out to see to eyeball the freighter. He was a mile or so out and I saw this wall of water coming in from the horizon. As far north and as far south, so I could see, and it was just a perfect wall of water. I watched that freighter go up the face of it, and I thought he was going to roll and capsize to his starboard, but he got over the top of it. And I don't know uh, who I was talking to, I was alone up there. Whether I was talking to Mother Nature or God himself, but they both heard me when I shouted across the Pacific at this thing. You've got to be fucking kidding me! I watched the wave crash into the coastline below me and the four reactor buildings. I stood there in horror. As a tremendous power and force of the thing just snapped everything, taking everything in its path with it. When it hit in the, the, the coastline, it had nowhere to go but uphill towards me because there was a lot of water behind it. It continued to push up and I started revisiting that feeling of doom I had 20 minutes earlier in the turbine building. My thoughts shifted to all the low-lying communities north and south of me. They are the ones I was so familiar with. I was on top of this hill but somebody certainly must be in trouble. 
and it was a feeling of helplessness. <clears throat> then something happened to me. I went into shock. I felt like I was in this glass bowl. I could see through it, but the inside of it was filled with this gazos fog of disbelief. And I watched two more smaller tsunamis come in on top of the first one, bringing the water up even higher. Had some coffee. <laughs> I make a break. <clears throat> uh, every time I'm uh, reading a story from this book, I don't know what a story will be about. It is as new for, m- for you as it is new for me. And I'm so, so speechless now about this story. Because I remember this uh, happening in Japan <coughs> by uh, the news, but it's totally different when it happens to you when you're over there. Okay, let's go back to the reading. <coughs> And finally it all started to mm, recede back down. It got to the shoreline and continued out into the Pacific. It receded out to sea uh, quite a far more and that harbor completely drained in front of my eyes and I was looking at seabed as far more north and as far south as I could see. <laughs> But with that um, came this wild weather front from the highlands behind me. These big black ominous clouds came rolling in, tumbling real low, and they just whipped across me. And behind it was this. It wasn't even a wind. It was a, like a vacuum. It was coming out to sea, and you could feel the temperature drop, and it began to snow. I'm standing there thinking, am I witnessing the end of our world? I truly pondered that. I took this long, dazed walk offside, and to this day, I can't remember the walk, but I got offside to our office, and I started to recognize groups of my co-workers and familiar faces. When I saw them, I stopped, and I turned around and turned my back to them and broke down. <clears throat> we were eventually evacuated to this parking lot up in the hills where we spent a very long night. The power was out, of course no water. I tried in vain to call my wife for hours, but the network was busy. Around midnight I asked two friends to take me to town. We slipped out of the yard and I said, take me to the chicken ladies. I wanted to check on her to see if she was there, if she needed help, if she was okay. We arrived and her little building was cracked right down the face and she wasn't there. 
she was nowhere to be found. <clears throat> I tried calling my wife again, and this time it rang. And when I said her name, she just screamed and kept screaming. I just kept saying, bad, very bad. I eventually got home on March 16, five days later, and you would think that getting home would cure all that ails and you but it was there that everything started to manifest i learned about the loss of life in japan i saw the footage on tv i learned about the reactors that i had serviced for 20 years exploding i was tired and i was exhausted and i had no energy but i couldn't sleep I was depressed, heartbroken and guilty and even though I was surrounded by my family, I was alone with these emotions. I found myself in my recliner like a vegetable for a month before I even realized the month had passed and nothing was important. Nothing. I was out of work for five months. And then I learned of a program set up by the Japanese government allowing residents back into their homes and apartments. That was it. It was absolutely necessary that I go back. I needed to go back. So a few months later, I returned to the exclusion, ex exclusion zone and after several checkpoints, I was given protective clothing from head to toe again, not to go to work, but to enter the community and neighborhood where I lived. I asked my escort to take me to the restaurant first. When I put her door open this time, I was stirring cobwebs with it, and that was unsettling to me, because it was clear that no one had opened their door in nine months. It made me want and worry more about what happened to her. From there we went to my apartment. I opened that door for the first time since the morning of March 11 when I left for work. And it was in shambles. Everything was on the floor and all the contents of the cabinets had been thrown out. The fridge was on each side. There were cracks in the wall. Even my fiberglass bathtub was shattered. I started to clean up and my escort said, you don't have to do this. But I said, yes, I do. I'm responsible for this space and this mess. And I cleaned it all up from end to end. I found what I was hoping to find, which was my wedding ring. I also picked up my alarm clock to the one that woke me up that morning. The battery had popped up, popped out of the back and hands were frozen at 2.47, the same time as the earthquake. Time had stood still in that apartment for nine months. When I finished there, I backed my way out and closed that door, literally closing that door behind me. It was therapeutic, to say the least, and I had some relief, some closure. But I still had one thing I needed to find out. I needed to learn the fate of the chicken lady. That night, I reached out to the Japan Times and asked them if they could help me find her. 
Is she with family? Is she going to be okay? Can I help her? And eventually, they did find her. And for the first time, I learned her name. It was Ovada. Ovara is her family name. Mrs. Ovada-san. And they told me the name of her restaurant was Ikoi. And that Ikoi in Japanese means rest, relax and relief. And I'm thinking... What a wonderful name for a little place. I used to stop there so often after work to rest and relax. Now I had this relief in knowing that these disasters didn't take her and that she was alive. And then finally, on February 19, 2012, Mrs. Ovada-san sent me a letter. I have escaped from the... I have escaped... <clears throat> Pardon. I have escaped from the disasters and have been doing fine every day. Pilitere-san, please take care of yourself. I know your work must your work must be important. I hope you enjoy a happy life like you seem to have when you came to my restaurant. Although I won't be seeing you, I will always pray for the best for you. And this is the end of the story. Oh, quite a long one, but such a touching one and so emotional. And I don't know if you believe me, guys, but um, dear listeners, but um, I'm quite... um, Cry now. Mm. Well, so uh, let's read a bit about who is Carl Piliteri, the author. So he spent over 30 years hot servicing nuclear generating stations around the world. After the events in Japan, he took short sabbatical trying to regain focus and find a new path. Carl attended a startup company installing residential sized wind turbines in the archipelago of the western coast of Taiwan, but those efforts have been thwarted by the Taiwan Power Company, TPC. While Carl waits for the TPC to see value in his project, he's back on the road, holds up in nuclear generating stations in the USA. So this story was told on November 6, 2013, in the Great Hall at Cooper Union, New York City. The theme of the evening was Dock and Cover, Stories of Fallout. Director Meg Bells. Oh, I can't wait for the next story. They're so, so deeply interesting. And so, um, transforming somehow the feelings we have, beliefs, and uh, values, and the soul together with the body. Yeah. Mm, thank you for 
um, taking some full time to listen to this recording as well and have an amazing day there where you are or the evening. I've noticed um, there are listeners, um, you, you guys are from so many countries. I think I've counted them and you, so all my listeners are from, I don't know, about 50 countries. And that is simply amazing. <laughs> Thank you guys for bearing with me and all the best to you the way you are. Bye bye.